I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hello, I'm Richard Scott and welcome to the Podcast Hour, the show where I share some of my best finds from the 700,000 plus podcasts out there today. Coming up, a new local show that explores death, bereavement and grief. It's sometimes said that time heals all wounds, but that's crap. Death sucks and we need to acknowledge that. Long Distance investigates the sometimes problematic history of the Tiki Bar. You would enter... A different, different reality. reality. You're in a South Seas hut or garden. Exotica music plays in the background. The lights are dim. The walls are colorful. There are all sorts of tropical accents like bamboo, rattan, masks, tikis. Following a paroled prisoner in supervision. It's not captivity and it's not freedom. It's something else. It's almost like a kind of purgatory. Then People Movers is very niche. It's an exploration of that often overlooked form of public transport, the escalator. When Charles Seberger displayed his escalator at the Paris Fair in 1900, he could have never predicted that 118 years later, Bodie would have been riding escalators for fun at a Wollongong shopping centre on a Sunday afternoon. And finally, coping with the food taboos and dietary requirements of the Indian Army in wartime. When Norwegian supplies of cod liver oil were cut off, and cod liver oil is a very good source of vitamin A, the Directory of Fisheries in Madras found a substitute. The liver oils of the hammerhead shark and sawfish. And next time you hear something good, then please do let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, you'll find us at RNZ Podcast Hour. Sooner or later, we're all going to experience bereavement, grief and loss in our lives. So how can we be prepared for this experience when it comes? Death, a podcast about love, grief and hopes, a locally produced show out this week that tries to find some answers about how we can cope with grief and how we can help others do the same. And the story is told by a man who's experienced incomprehensible loss himself. In 2011, Mark Longley's daughter Emily was murdered in England when she was 17 years old. This bewildering event marks attempts to come to terms with it. An audio grabbed from home videos of the young Emily give the show a lot of its emotional resonance and its driving force. But it's not just his story. 
He speaks to others who have lost loved ones to suicide, illness, in accidents and to old age. And spoiler alert, despite all the clichés about time-healing wounds and closure, you're not going to find any nice, neat, simple answers here. The experience of grief's complex and confusing, messy, highly personal. The rotten bit about death and dying is it is clumsy. There's nothing elegant about it. There is nothing romantic about it. There is nothing scripted about it or anything like that. It is just all clumsy because it's new every time. Lise Groot Alberts is a grief therapist and a public speaker on palliative care. Lise moved to New Zealand from Friesland in the Netherlands with her family in the 1980s and she developed her professional practice through her own tragic story of personal loss. Lise's oldest daughter, Nana, was almost three when she died, just days after Lise's son, Aiko, had been born. She had a very acute uh, respiratory illness which started when my labour started, and then she died two days later. Dear. And yeah. she was th- almost three? Almost three. And she died two days after our son was born. So that was that hope and despair and joy and sorrow. This experience of joy and sorrow coming so closely together left people in Lisa's life confused about how to approach her. She says that in the days and months after, many people simply stayed away. Unable to find the right words, they chose instead to stay quiet. When our daughter died and our son was born, people did stay away and people didn't know what to do and mm. didn't know what to say. What do you do? Do you bring a, a, a present for the birth and, and, and condolences for death? Yeah, yeah. It was tough. Forty years have passed since Nana died and Lise says that she has come to understand why some people avoided her and the subject of Nana's death. When our children die, our future dies, and yeah. it's really threatening. And being a parent and, and being in that core of love and being so wounded in that, mm. and I think often it is threatening for other parents. And I think part of why some of our peers stayed away who had children at a similar age mm. was because it was too painful. It does take courage at times to be with with somebody else who's in a lot of pain. People heal better in social networks, even if they reject them. And they need choices around whether they accept people into that intimate pain or not. Dr Peter Bray is the programme leader for the counselling programme at the University of Auckland. We know people need to talk about stuff. And so just to sit with a cup of tea, people need that. They just need the silence to reflect, to talk to others who may not judge them, who may not see them as contaminated by their loss. Peter was working as a school counsellor in England when he, his wife Bridget, who was pregnant with their son Freddie and her three children, decided to move to New Zealand in the late 1990s. Yeah, about about 22 years ago, um, I was working in England uh, as a a school counsellor, but also as a teacher. And I thought I'd, I'd like to see the world a bit. So I, I looked to new places. Peter took up a role as school counsellor at Mangare College. The details of Peter's story are difficult to hear. I guess some people might call her quite, quite a hippie, quite a, a tall, buoyant woman, dark mm. hair, raven black hair, enthusiastic about pretty much everything, mm. uh, devoted to her children, 
and fortunately devoted to me as well. We were trying to trying to get a baby. We did some IVF. We'd managed to create a child, and the child was was born in New Zealand um, within a, a a month of his arrival, and then within about another eight months, uh, he was dead. Bridget and uh, Ben and Freddie and and Daniel, her other boy were involved in a car accident. They were going down to, to pick up a, a schnauzer for us, um, a pet, a puppy, uh, and we were very excited about it. And they went off in the car, and I, I, I was left with uh, Simeon and Abigail back at base. And they went off on this wet morning and uh, had this accident. They were T-boned at, uh, on State Highway 1. The kids were eating breakfast, and... Uh, a couple of hours, mid-morning, um, there was a knock at the door and uh, two police officers arrived. They were standing in the doorway and, and I'd understood that they were going to tell me something bad and I made a joke about, oh, you know, in the films the police always say they have to come inside and, mm-hmm. and the next thing you'll do is ask me to sit down. And they said, we do think you should sit down. They, they told me that uh, there'd been an, a road accident and that my... My wife had been killed. And then they said, um, and uh, your, your other son, Ben, has also been killed. By now I'm kind of reaching for cover, you know, and, and not knowing what's going on. Uh, and knowing that this is an impossible script and thinking it's over now, I've got, I've got a child. I've still got a child. You know, uh, Freddie's going to be okay. Um, and they said, and, and your, your, your baby child has suffered severe head injuries and um, is on his way to Hamilton Hospital. And I'm like, at that point, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know who I am. Uh, I, everything's focused on this pinprick of a moment. And my feelings are... Yeah, that, that I'm part of the universe and I've been sp- sort of exploded, but that I'm still having to accept this pain, that, that the pain is still there and it's a pain I've never felt before. And it just was multiple and accumulative and it wasn't looking good for Freddie. For those of us on the outside, what is the answer? What is the right thing to say to someone who is recently bereaved? From the people I have interviewed for this series and those I've met in my life. There is no one answer. Some need company, some need space. But there is a common thread. Say something. Don't disappear. Literally saying, I don't know what to say. That's a a beautiful sentence, because Mm. that's the truth of it. So it's all about speaking the truth of it at the time. Lee Scrute Alberts says that simply showing up and acknowledging loss is so important. It was a neighbor of, of a friend of ours who sent a tiny little card mm. uh, and said, we're really sorry to hear about the death of Mamna and we congratulate you with the birth of Aiko, your son. Yeah. And, and that meant a lot. One of the, the people who really were there was my grandmother. Mm. And she just stayed there. She didn't give advice. Mm-hmm. She didn't tell me uh, how she did it or what happened to her or anything like mm-hmm. that. She was just there. 
it's one of the hardest things, but also one of the simplest things to mm. do yeah. is to stay, to be present. Yeah. And you don't need to fix it because you can't. That's right. You yeah. don't need to uh, give advice because you can't, and it's nonsense most of the time yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, however, the courage to stay present yeah. and to bear that, which is at times, I think, quite unbearable, yeah. to sit with, with a deep pain, with a deep grief. Some of Death, a podcast about love, grief and hope, presented by Mark Longley and produced by Maggie Wicks for NewsHub. There are three episodes out now and they're all out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts from. With their blend of tacky decor, exotic cocktails, hula skirts and loud shirts... Nothing said fun quite like the tiki bars and Polynesian-themed lounges that sprang up in the US back in the 50s and the 60s. Paolo Mardo's an audio producer based in California who show long distance, tells stories about the Filipino diaspora. She first got interested in tiki bars when she found out all about the uh, Filipino bartenders who got jobs at some of these drinking spots. She even did her university thesis about them. And with these bars experiencing a bit of a revival, she reviews their somewhat problematic cultural heritage. The very first tiki bar was called Don the Beachcomber, a nautical-themed bar that opened in Hollywood in 1934, one year after the repeal of Prohibition. Its founder was a man who went by the name of Don Beach. Don was a character. He loved to party and to travel. He decorated his bar with souvenirs from his many trips to Hawaii and other Polynesian islands. He also rented them to film productions, becoming an advisor for movies set in the South Seas, which were very popular at the time. A little crazy considering the fact that he wasn't a historian and had no real connections to Hawaii or the Pacific. Regardless of Don's qualifications, his bar attracted Hollywood coworkers and celebrity guests like Charlie Chaplin, Marlena Dietrich, and Howard Hughes. Soon, other tiki bar chains started opening up across the country, like Trader Vic's, where the Mai Tai was invented. What I learned about tiki bars was that they really arose after World War II, after servicemen came back from the Pacific. That's Karen Williams, a Cook Islander film producer who works at the New Zealand Film Commission. Years ago, she worked on a film called American Tiki. Obviously, they'd been in the war and that had been horrible, but they'd also had these great experiences on the beach, at the luau, with the hula girls, and they were sort of trying to recreate that in their own world. By the time Hawaii became the 50th state in 1959, tiki bars expanded into Polynesian-style lounges and restaurants. But they weren't just places to eat and drink. Sven Kirsten, author of Tiki Pop, and several books in tiki bars and culture, says that tiki bars were an experience. Well, the tiki bar experiences really starts with coming from the outside of an urban environment through the doors. Often they would have a little footbridge over a moat with, you know, tiki torches burning, and you would enter a different, different reality. reality. You're in a South Seas hut or garden. Exotica music plays in the background. The lights are dim. The walls are colorful. There are all sorts of tropical accents like bamboo, rattan, masks, tikis. 
The exotic sights and sounds tickle your taste buds and your senses. Waiters serve you American Chinese food with pineapple for some Polynesian flavor. But the main course of the Tiki Bar is its selection of tropical drinks, and there are many to choose from. They're all served in mugs decorated with tiki's skulls, or even topless hula girls. You see, the idea of the tiki bar is to sit in a completely artificial but natural-looking environment where you drink these special cocktails and the place sort of lulls you into this illusion that you were in the South Seas. All right, I know that sounded like a tropical paradise, but didn't it also sound kind of weird? Topless hula girls and skulls? American Chinese food with pineapple for Polynesian flavor? I guess you could call that Asian fusion. By the 1960s, tiki culture was so popular that it touched on everything. Movies, music, design, architecture... Think Hawaiian or Aloha shirts and lays. A fancy night out was a trip to the local tiki lounge. Backyard luau's were popular as people built their own home tiki bars, complete with tiki torches and mugs, and record players spinning Hawaiian music. By the time the Brady Bunch vacationed in Hawaii and faced the curse of the tiki idol, tiki bars and culture were a bona fide pop culture phenomenon. Hey, this is my tiki. That's my tiki. I know what you're thinking. Why tiki bars? Why talk about them now? Well, I wanted to know more about Ray Buchan and the story of the Filipino bartenders who worked at these first tiki bars in LA. And tiki bars are actually coming back in a really big way. There's tiki bars popping up all over the place in big cities and in smaller cities, especially on the West Coast. That's Catherine Spires, and she's written about tiki bar history and the big tiki resurgence that's happening right now. And I think part one of that is escapism. The other element is that I think that tiki was really the first mixology. Catherine says that the original tiki drinks were really good, complicated but not in a fussy way, and layered purposefully. These days, there's a growing respect for the cocktail in America. Just head to your nearest fancy restaurant or bar, and you'll see a cocktail menu about as long as your food menu. You can thank tiki bars for that. But not everyone is happy about this resurgence of all things tiki. I was born in New Zealand, or Aotearoa, as we call it in the Maori language. That's the film producer Karen Williams again. We talked over Skype about a tiki bar documentary she started working on when she lived in L.A right around the corner from the Tiki Tea. I found the whole thing really fairly bizarre. They were Polynesian-themed places, but when you really got down to it, the culture and the history was pretty shallow. Karen didn't end up making the film, but her research showed that tiki bars enforced a lot of negative stereotypes about Pacific Islanders. Yeah, so there's a drink that they do in the Tiki Tea, and it's called the Ooga Booga. They pour this rum drink and all the patrons in the bar yell out, ooga booga, ooga booga, when they're making this drink. 
that is really pretty offensive. That is real kind of jungle bunny stuff. That is reinforcing stereotypes of Polynesians as kind of jungle savages, that whole ooga booga idea. So in New Zealand, the word tiki or hei tiki, these represent actual Polynesian ancestors. The tribes of Polynesia can trace their origins back to these ancestors. So for me, it represents ancestors. They represent spirituality and old spirituality, which is actually still very much alive today. So, you know, seeing it in a bar is really in many ways it's degrading those images and degrading that history. Tiki's everywhere. I meet Sven Kirsten, author of Tiki Pop, at his home in Los Angeles, which he calls a tiki museum. He's been collecting tiki masks, mugs, figures, and other memorabilia over the last 30 years. This big tiki here that you see standing there and some of these lamps came from the Tiki's amusement park. This is my smoking table with my Tiki tea mugs that I designed. Sven says he got into what he calls Tiki culture in the 1980s, when Tiki was already out of style, poo-pooed by the younger generation in the 60s and 70s for being politically incorrect, tacky, kitschy, plastic, and artificial. And that's exactly why Sven was so intrigued. The artificiality of it all was decried by that generation. In retrospect, for me, the artificiality of it became the cool thing. The Kings actually wrote a song about Waikiki, and they rhymed Waikiki with hula skirts made out of PVC. <laughs> I love artifice, and I'm always interested by the reinterpretation of a culture by another culture. Tiki fans like Sven started researching and writing about tiki drinks, music, the overall aesthetic in the 90s. Sven's book Tiki Pop has copies of old tiki bar menus. Here's one of them. It's from a place called the Cannibal Room Cocktail Lounge. First drink on the list, right above the Mai Tai, The Black Woman. A dusky bell from deep in the jungle, sweeter than most, gets along with anything, but favors vodka. Here's another one. The Headhunter Special. You'll lose your head over this one. That's next to a drawing of a brown man in a loincloth. He's holding a bloody head and a big knife. You see, tiki bars became shorthand for what was exotic and foreign to Americans at the time. I asked Sven if he thought tiki bars were in some way, offensive, inaccurate, an appropriation of Pacific culture. Well, you know, it's, it's, you have to decide for yourself, and I respect people that don't like it, but if you go to a Chinese restaurant, I don't know of any Buddhists that are offended by Buddha statues and illustrations of the goddess Kuan Yin on, on the menu. It's mythology, but they are a cultural symbol for something. I like going to kitschy Bavarian restaurants like the Red Lion and see all these representations of Germans in Lederhosen and with these giant beer mugs, which to somebody like me from northern Germany, 
absolutely ridiculous because that's not how we run around there. But anything that is a pop culture version of an authentic culture made for entertainment and for recreation is bound to not be authentic. It was never intended to be an insult. It was created out of a love for that culture and a fascination with that culture. Some of episode six of Long Distance, written, hosted and produced by Paul Amado. <laughs> Parole, that intermediate step between prison and freedom, doesn't get a whole heap of coverage in the mainstream press. And any attention it does get isn't normally very positive, usually something about somebody re-offending when they get released back into the community. Some of this could be down to the fact that most people who have been to prison do tend to end up back inside. Here in New Zealand, more than half of all released prisoners are back in jail inside five years. And things aren't too different in the northeastern US state of New Hampshire. There, half of all people on parole end up back in prison within three years. So reporter Emily Corwin started wondering why parole goes wrong for so many people. And to tell the story properly, she had to find someone going through the process themselves. In a new show called Supervision, she follows a paroled prisoner called Josh Lavenetz to see how he gets on once he gets out. If you spend any time thinking about the criminal justice system, I would guess you're thinking about things like this. Overcrowded prisons. Racial injustice. Here's what I bet you're not thinking about. Parole. It's not like there are any great movies about life on parole. There are no unforgettable parole breakout scenes. But parole is a ubiquitous part of the criminal justice system. It's supposed to reward inmates who behave by letting them out of prison early. It's a safety valve that reduces overcrowding. And if the state is going to take a risk and let someone out of prison early, well, parole lets law enforcement keep tabs on them. I've reported on criminal justice for years. And I've come to learn another thing about parole. That it's a state of being. It's not captivity and it's not freedom. It's something else. It's almost like a kind of purgatory. One that starts here. This is a parole hearing for Jacob Porter. Can those present for the hearing state your name and relationship in the case for the record, please? March 2nd, 2017. I'm in New Hampshire's largest prison, in the back of what looks like a miniature courtroom. One by one, inmates shuffle in, in orange or green jumpsuits and shackles. One by one, they sit at a tiny table facing a big desk. That desk sits up on risers above them. Up there, that's the parole board. This is a parole hearing for Paul Frescona. This is a parole hearing for Adam Smart. This is a parole hearing for Kane Davis. Inmates wait years for this moment, for these eight or so minutes when they can stand before a parole board and try to prove they've changed, that they're ready for life on the outside. It's a single moment when, it seems, years of freedom hang in the balance. Found out I can't change the past, so I just got to move on and look forward to the future and be with people. I've never had rehab, and that substance abuse issues—it all stems from mental health. 
One of the first things that strikes me as I watch inmate after inmate step in front of the parole board is how practical and mundane a lot of their questions are. Make sure you have that appointment before you leave. So do you have a, a mental health provider in the community? Uh, you already have a job lined up? I do. Okay. They want to know the person before them has a concrete plan for life on the outside. They want to know you've got a job, you've got housing, you've got transportation. There's no bus, there's no bus or anything like that. They call if you haven't planned these details, the board knows it will be hard to succeed. So she's okay with this? Yep, she's okay with this. Kane Davis tells them if he's released, okay. he's going to move in with his ex. Someone the board chair refers to as his baby mama. Three kids and some other guy that lives there? Who's he? Um, that's her boyfriend. So I'll be sleeping in a little boy's room. He, he's all for it, too. He's like, oh, he goes, oh, we're going to have playtime. He goes, we can sit and play toys and matchboxes. I'm like, Did you catch oh, that? Boy, he's go. moving in with his ex and her boyfriend. Still, he gets paroled. But the board wants to know about more than just your living situation. They want to know what you're going to do with your time. Well, I don't understand what you're trying to say. Like, well, my day look like? Yeah. What do you do? What do you do with your time? Paul Frascona seems particularly unprepared for this moment. He's not in the room. He's video conferencing in from another prison. Paul says when he gets out, he's going to watch TV, walk to the park, and obsessively clean his apartment because... He's got OCD. Oh, so how many years have you been behind the wall? I've been in foster homes, group homes. I've been in prison basically all, almost my whole life. Yeah, substance so musician. It, it all stems from mental health. Yep. And, and I've been self-medicating for a long time. Yep. I've been here for a long time. This and is Adam Smart. And he's almost too put together. In my notebook, I write in caps, really smart. And one board member, Leslie Mendenhall, she thinks he's making excuses about why he hasn't gotten drug treatment. And she loses it. I think you're full of shit, and I think you're just trying to sell a nice, a nice boat down the river. And it's just, you're full of it. It's you're all, full of yourself. It's all on record, right? Every time I'm going to mental health. Every single time. Okay. So you can and see And what that are you taking for medications? Nothing. Nothing. No. Why? Because they want to put me on sleep meds for anxiety. It's wild to think of it. As I sit in the back of the room watching these men and a few women pass before me in this parole hearing conveyor belt, most of them are going to get out of prison on parole. And then half are going to fail. Half of parolees in New Hampshire end up right back in prison in less than three years. In most other parts of the country... The odds are much better. Yes, ma'am. Okay. This is a parole hearing for Josh Lavinetz via video in Berlin. A new face appears on the screen. He's sitting in a prison in Berlin, New Hampshire, way up north. He's got a short buzz cut, and he's wearing these rectangular wire-rimmed glasses. You're looking to parole, is that correct? Yes, sir. Some of these inmates have family in the room during their hearing. Some wave and say, I love you, through the video screen. One inmate even has a lawyer. But I'm the only one back here when Josh Lavinitz comes on the screen. 
Okay, you're in for some uh, pretty serious crimes. I mean, you assaulted your wife and, you, and your son. And yes. looking at your record, there's a lot of assaults uh, in your history. So how have you changed? Uh, well, I'm 39 years old. I lost everything because of my decision-making, my lack of decision-making. Josh has good answers to all the questions. He's got job prospects. He knows where he's going to live and get treatment. And he says he understands now how his bad decisions are fueled by alcohol and depression. All right, Mr. Levinetz, we are going to grant you the privilege of parole. Your minimum is... The board walks him through the conditions of his release. He'll get out in two months, in the spring. Well, you know what you need to do. Yes, ma'am. Good luck. Thank you, ma'am. At the bottom of my notepad, I circle the words, good candidate. The day after the hearing, I write a handful of letters to parolees. I write, I want to know what it's really like to be out of prison, but not free. To have to check in with a parole officer regularly for years. To start again and to try not to get sent back. I ask, will you work with me to tell your story? And what I really want to know is this. What is it that makes every other parolee fail? Why do half land back in prison? I think maybe if I could just get to know someone who's going through it, I could see what's going on. Two weeks later, I get a handwritten letter. It's from... Josh Lavinitz, number 22176. Some of episode one, The Privilege of Parole in Supervision from New Hampshire Public Radio, presented by Emily Corwin. You're listening to the Podcast Hour on RNZ National. In Australia you stand to the left of them. But in the UK, you have to stand to the right. I'm talking, of course, about escalators. People Movers is a show all about them. It's one woman's passion project, an independent podcast mining a very particular niche. Lindsay Green was commuting through Melbourne Station when she started noticing that some of the escalators seemed to be moving faster than others, depending on the time of day and how busy it was. So in her spare time outside her job in community radio, she started researching this often overlooked form of public transport. Her love of escalators has taken her to Ukraine and Hong Kong, home to the longest outdoor escalator system in the world, just in case you didn't know that already. And over the nine episodes she's made so far, she looks at topics like escalator history, fears and phobias, and some gory escalator-related injuries. Here, Lindsay meets another escalator enthusiast. Bodie's a 23-year-old with an intellectual disability who loves riding on them. So she goes to visit Bodie, his mother Shushi, and her partner Mark. How old was he when he when you discovered that he liked escalators? Yeah, I think he was about seven. My recollection was it was waiting at the, at airport, the airport, yeah, to pick was... me up, and you, and and the plane was late, and 
So you took him on the escalators and then we realised he just wanted to go up and down and up and down. And that was it? And actually, um, when he was 11, we had his birthday party at the escalators. So we set up tables at the top of the street mall and his favourite ones are next to the street mall. They go straight off the street mall. And um, my artist sister made these flags um, on bamboo poles. And so we set up all the food and all the homeless people joined in the party as well. And then, and then um, we went all around the escalators with him. Each of us holding a flag behind him as he trailed us around. He didn't kill us, but we had a great time. And and the other funny thing that happened—not funny thing, nice thing—when you're talking about escalator art, I was thinking was that one of our friends made an escalator cake. Oh wow! So she actually yeah. made the sides and um, those licorice um, straps with lines on them for the rails and steps and everything. I'll see if I can find a picture because yeah. that was amazing. That was a piece of um, cake art. Well, she she was an artist. She studied art, so <laughs> it was a sculpture. Bodie is 23. He's lived in a group home since he was 18, about half an hour away from Mark and Shushi. There he goes to a day program four days a week where he and other men in the home ride the train, go swimming, go on picnics and, of course, ride escalators. What do you think it is about the escalators that he enjoys, like the movement, the speed, the texture? I think it's a combination because he's always been fascinated with steps as well. Mm-hmm. So with, with escalators, you've got the, the combination of the movement, the rhythm, because he's always been quite attuned to sounds and music. Mm-hmm. So the, the movement, the rhythm, but also, you know, with the, the, um, yeah, the steps. Well, he's, he's kind of a gross motor kid, so he yeah. likes steps and ladders and boardwalks and... Um, mm. escalators and I think it is it's a bit like a ride you know they're mm. exciting they move they take you somewhere they kind of action without him having to do very much and yeah you, you'll see and, when you go to and he has little moves like you know he'll he'll, he'll turn around backwards and, and go backwards and he'll know just at the right moment when to pirouette around and, or, and or when forward. to lift his heels and get off backwards or the other thing he does when the escalator's going up is he puts his foot on the upper step and makes it clunk 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 mm. and things like that. Which can be dangerous at times, <laughs> which we found out. <laughs> the next day, Lindsay meets Bodie and they go to ride on the escalators at a local mall. We got to the shopping centre and Bodie led the way. If he wanted to go to the escalators with steps, he'd point to the picture on his belt mm. that had steps. If he wanted mm. to go to the ramp escalators, he would point to the picture of the ramp. We're going to show her the steps one and the ramp one. Because there's a steps one before we get to the ramp one. Yes, where's the ramp escalator? We rode up and down on the steps escalators and on the ramp escalators, with Bodhi leading us to the ones he preferred. It was clearly a well worn path for Bodhi and for Shushi. Bodhi was on a mission, and it was just up to Shushi and I to catch up. Yeah, that's the steps. Yeah, yeah. Steps. Yeah. 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 Steps. Yeah. 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 I don't think there's anyone quite as interested in the classification of type as Bodhi. In fact, I could draw a taxonomy because uh, ramp and steps, choose either, up or down, choose either, and you have to choose from both. 
actually have any sort of pattern or is it random each time? No, um, he, he rarely comes back to these ones. We usually stay over there and those ones. But I think he is trying to show you yeah. that there's different ones. Yeah, we will go to Hungry Jack when we're finished. We'll go to Hungry Jack's and have a chicken burger when we're finished at the escalators. You want to go now? No, let's do a bit more escalators. A bit more escalators. Yeah, when we're finished, For most of us, escalators are just a form of transport. They help take us from point A to point B, and once we're at point B, we don't really think about them. But for some people, like Bodhi and Shushi, they're more than just transport. Shushi mentioned the night before that she and Mark had once considered moving to Armidale in regional New South Wales. She said that when they were thinking about moving, they had to consider how many escalators were in the city because they'd become such a big part of their lives and they couldn't live in a place without them. One of my favourite things about escalators is how little the technology has changed in the past hundred years, but how widely their use has developed over this time. When Charles Seeberger displayed his escalator at the Paris Fair in 1900, he could have never predicted that 118 years later, Bodhi would have been riding escalators for fun at a Wollongong shopping centre on a Sunday afternoon. We rode the escalators for about an hour. They usually go for longer, but I had a train to catch. Bodie, Lindsay's going now. Can turn around and wave bye bye to Lindsay? It's nice to meet you, Bodie. Mm. Yeah, Lindsay's going now. We're going to say bye bye, Lindsay. See you next time. And pretty soon, I was on the train back to Sydney, where I listened to podcasts and looked out the window, thinking about the places I went and the people I met, all because of escalators. Some of episode eight of People Movers called Escalator Enthusiasts, and that show's presented and produced by Lindsay Green. Feeding an army during wartime has always been a huge logistical challenge, and that problem was magnified for the Indian Army in the Second World War. With the army having to rapidly grow its numbers, it lowered height and weight requirements for new recruits, so lots of malnourished, food-deprived people started joining up. And army rations also had to cater for all the food habits and dietary restrictions observed by India's different religious and ethnic groups. An interesting podcast called The Intersection explores Indian stories at the meeting point of culture, science and history. And this is some of an episode called War and Peas. From 1944, nutritional studies were undertaken in northwestern India in Abbottabad in Rawalpindi to find the effect of army diet on recruits' physical condition. The testing was done on three groups. The first group had the same sort of basic ration scale, close to 4,000 calories. A second one which had an extra intake of meat. So the basic ration scale had 2 ounces of meat per day per soldier. So these guys uh, were given 12 ounces uh, of meat per day per soldier. And a third group was created uh, which had the basic ration less any form of meat but 48 ounces of milk extra. So what they then found was that of these three groups, the ones which put maximum uh, sort of weight in in a short span of time was the group which was consuming extra meat, 
whereas the ones which were uh, putting on least was the purely vegetarian one with extra milk right so and and then they were trying to figure out why is it what is it there in meat that allows this kind of additional thing and after a lot of testing they just figured out that maybe meat generates better metabolism in general according to a 1961 book on history of the indian armed forces in the second world war and i quote these experiments provide evidence about the superiority of a meat diet over the others the implications of which in a predominantly vegetarian population hardly need stressing end of quote these experiments also changed the calorie count of army rations which according to research in world war 1 should have been 3574 calories per soldier per day by the end of the war the calorie count went up to 4200 calories a day with 100 grams of protein of which 32 grams had to be animal protein It was well known that military recruits underwent marked improvement over the months following enlistment. Nutrition, control of diseases, physical training, many joined the army because it was a way out of food deprivation. Much of the health benefit in armies across the world came from meat intake. But in India, even though the ration system was reformed to include more animal protein and vitamin enriched foods, commanding officers were not very willing to make the changes, mostly due to diverse food taboos. Animal protein always remained tricky. Getting meat to the Indian soldiers and making them eat it was a huge task. In fact, even today, Dr. Rao informs us, field ration packs in the Indian army are vegetarian because we are not very sure of the quality, the safety and the processing adherence to processing requirements. And meat is a very sensitive issue, whether it is halal or a jhatka, whether it is this animal or that animal. It was in 1943 when India started pushing into Burma and Southeast Asia that mutton was labeled halal and jhatka for Hindus and Sikhs. Marmite, vegetables and fruits were added to the menu. And here we will hear Lieutenant General Sundara Rao, a second World War veteran who joined the army at age 21 and now he is in his early 90s. We were little in contact with uh, the American forces. They had what was known as stay rations which uh, a separate for breakfast. The American K ration that he refers to was developed as a pocket ration for paratroopers for the US Air Force early in the war. Similar to that, an emergency ration pack for use by any Indian was also improvised. It had chocolate bar with vitamins, biscuits, cheese, sardines, sugar, milk powder, tea and salt. Everyone hated the tinned sardines though. This kind of reform in provisioning techniques changed army food to something that not only meant calories but also health protection. Scientists, doctors, quartermasters worked together to apply nutritional discoveries to civilian and military diets. And scarcities have always led to innovations. For instance, the addition of yeast to the ration or the fortification of milk with vitamin A. Amla, which is Indian gooseberry, was found to be the most stable form for distribution of vitamin C. and so came amla tablets to prevent scurvy the calcium content of rations was increased by fortifying atta with calcium carbonate and when norwegian supplies of cod liver oil were cut off and cod liver oil is a very good source of vitamin a the directory of fisheries in madras found a substitute the liver oils of the hammerhead shark and sawfish caught on the west coast of the madras presidency were richer in vitamin a than cod liver oil but i can tell you one thing that modern science has removed from the ration uh one of the ration scales actually allowed for a dosage of opium so if you could get a medical certificate saying that you needed to have opium because you are an addict or for other medical reasons then uh one of the ration scales even provided for a dosage of opium that i'm sure is not around in the dynamic today so. there are however things that continue to be used 
in the country we had uh, army biscuits they continue to be a part of some rations even now food packets have come a long way from just plain atta and ghee War and Peace from the intersection presented by Padna Palma Ghosh and Samanth Subramanian. And that's about it from me for now as well as the intersection. This week we've been listening to People Movers, Supervision, Long Distance and Death, a podcast about love, grief and hope. The podcast hour will be back next week with some of Malcolm Gladwell's revisionist history returning for its fourth season and also two left field creators meditate on music and fandom in I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats. They're just two of the shows I'll be featuring next week. And in the meantime, please send all your listening recommendations to me at pods at rnz.co.nz or on Twitter at RNZ Podcast Hour. And finally, from me, Richard Scott, enjoy the rest of your weekend and happy listening. See you. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.